God bless you. If you have your Westover app, I invite you to join it. If you have a print Bible or if you have an electronic Bible and you'd like to join us, please go with us to Hebrews chapter 12. Keep your Bible open, your app open, because we're going to be visiting several passages of Scripture today. We're beginning a two-part series this weekend and next weekend, and I've entitled it, God Wins. We're going to look at end-time prophecy for a moment. What does the Bible say about the days that we live in and the prophecies concerning the coming of the Lord? But with that, I want to remind you as we look at this, in the final analysis, you need to know God's going to win. Have you ever been in a conversation, a game's going, your favorite team's playing, but you're busy or working, and you'll ask from time to time, who's winning? Well, I believe you came to ask today, who's winning? And I'm going to tell you, God's going to win. And this whole thing, when God wraps it up, the final verdict will be, God wins. It was just last night we set our clocks. We set our clocks back an hour. And because of that, we're getting all on, we're getting synchronized to the, to the fall going off of daylight savings time. I'm going to invite you today to set your clock to God's prophetic clock. Some of us are living by a personal priority, an interest. We're making decisions that are not calibrated to God's prophetic clock. We are out of sync with the kingdom of God. Today I'm going to ask you to reset your clock, your priorities to the kingdom of God. With that in mind, join me in the book of Hebrews chapter number 12. Verse 26 and 27. And again, we'll read other verses throughout the message. And it says, And at that time, his, God's voice, shook the earth. But now he has promised, One more time will I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is, created things so that what cannot be shaken will remain. What is the Bible telling us? God has promised that one more time he's going to shake the world. One more time he's going to bring a shaking. Governments, economies, security, philosophies, one more time he's going to shake the world and everything that can be shaken is going to fall and crumble to show the world there's one thing that cannot be shaken. His kingdom cannot be shaken. His kingdom will not be moved. God's going to win. And we need to know everything outside of the kingdom we're going to lose. Some of us are holding on. We're, we're, we're killing ourselves. Our, we're sacrificing our family for something the Bible says it's going to melt with a fervent heat. It's never going to last, but the kingdom of God will last. It seems like as we stepped in the 21st century, for the last uh, almost two decades, there has been a rapid succession, almost like God's prophetic time clock has accelerated. For example, we stepped into the 21st century and we experienced 9-11 the two trade, World Trade Center towers in New York City collapsed as there were terrorists that attacked the United States. This century, 
as we stepped into this 21st century, we've had the rise of ISIS. We had the Great Recession. We've seen the reemergence of Russia Bear. And that Russia Bear is, is exerting its influence around the world, particularly with concern in the Middle East. We have seen the rise of China to a new level. They are not only a military superpower, they are an economic superpower. And if you read and the, the prognosticators and economists are saying, by the year 2025, China will be the number one economic superpower in the world. We see that Turkey is realigning. It is moving more to the east and away from the west. We see cracks in the NATO alliance. In England, there is their tremors and convulsions as they're trying to figure out Brexit and trying to figure out what their economy will look like. And it's having an impact in Europe. What I'd like to say, there is an economic shaking going on. There is an international shaking going on. There is a sociological shaking going on. We're redefining gender and society, and there's more division in America and the world today than ever before, a tribalism that's happening in the world. There is a spiritual shaking. Values, the spiritual climate of America is plummeting. There is a moral and a psychological shaking going on. The Internet has, has popularized pornography smut. Your kids in elementary are exposed to more smut than you and I as adults were when we were in college. This world has propelled and society as we know it has changed. I hear people say today, the America I live in is not the America I was raised in. People are grieving over the division, the moral collapse, the lack of values, the lack of absolutes that have become popularized in America today. There's vernacular, nomenclature that is, that is popular and is among our society that is new to this generation, and that is mass shooting, active shooter. That was not even in our vocabulary when many of us were growing up. When we were growing up, the big concern in school was somebody shooting spitwads. Remember that? And now the concern is somebody walking in with a pump shotgun and mowing and murdering people down. Our world has changed. Things are shaking. And for the message today, and I will follow up, and I will preach part two next weekend, I would like to give you a prophetic timeline. The Bible gives us a prophetic timeline. Set your clock to God's timeline. There is in the Bible a prophetic timeline that indicates a succession of events that we can see that are clearly given to us in Scripture, and I would like to share that prophetic timeline with you today. In this prophetic timeline, I'm going to begin by setting one of the most significant events in world history. Your calendar, your calendar is scheduled by it, and spiritually is one of the most significant things in world history, and that's Jesus Christ coming, dying on a cross, his life.
He gave his life on a bloody cross to purchase and procure salvation for everyone. Doesn't matter your background. Doesn't matter your religion. Doesn't matter your association. Jesus died whosoever will, for God so loved the world. And there's a bloody cross that Jesus reached out and brought salvation to. I'm going to set that because we know historically when that happened, and you can count it back in your calendar. Since the cross, we have moved into an era that theologians call the church age. It is referenced in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. There are seven churches of Asia that are indicated there. Most theologians, and I concur, believe that the seven churches in Asia were given to us in chronological order and indicate the church age since Jesus Christ was upon this earth. And we have moved from different segments and at different areas, the church, the body of Christ, worldwide, have been in that era. We have moved out of the Philadelphia church age, and now in the 21st century, the American church in particular and the worldwide church finds itself in the last era of the church age, which is the Laodicean church age. What is the Laodicean church age? The Laodicean church age, according to Jesus, Revelation chapter 3, is a church that's primary interest is on itself. It's self-focused. It's worried about being happy. The theology of that is prosperity and pleasure. And sure enough, the platforms and the pulpits of America fulminate a theology that God just wants you rich, and American church is, if you don't tell us what we want to hear, we'll go down the street and we'll find somebody that will pat us on the back and tell us what we want. A Laodicean church today in which in America, attending church one time a month is considered regular church attendance. One time a month. If you attend as many as 12 times in a calendar year, you are a regular attender church, according to the American culture. The Bible tells us that the Word of God is like a meal, and some of us are only eating 12 meals a year. Can I tell you, in any scenario, that is spiritual starvation. That is the American church today. When we speak up of God's value, when we say that God has preferences and God has selected gender and God has given us values, God has an opinion about people cohabitating. God has an opinion about the lifestyle and the consumption of alcohol. There is a pushback saying, you're prejudiced. You're intolerant. You need, to, you need to get with it in the 21st century. And all we've done is we have declared the truth of God's word and there is a pushback in the American culture, we are in the Laodicean church age. We're in the last age before the coming of the Lord. Let me add to this prophetic timeline the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. Let me just share with you. Many of you don't know what the word rapture is. The rapture of the church refers to the catching away 
of those that know Jesus Christ as their Savior. If you've invited Jesus to come into your heart and you've had a making new, a born again, a life-changing experience and you're a follower of Christ, you're looking for and should expect what we call the rapture of the church. Now let me just add to this. It's become popular on the internet to reject the teaching of the rapture of the church. And let me just say for a moment, please do not get your theology and your eschatology from the internet. People go to the internet to find out what the Bible says. Can I advise you to do something? Just go to the Bible to find out what the Bible says. Isn't that a novel idea? Instead of some crackpot theologian or philosopher on the internet telling you what he believes the Bible says, why don't we just read the Bible and find out what the Bible says? And there are people out there on the internet has become popular to push back and not even believe in a rapture. I will tell you the assemblies of God, this church, and this pastor very strongly and unequivocally will affirm the belief in the rapture of the church. They push back in the belief of the rapture of the church because they say, well, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. That is correct, but it is in the Latin Bible, but it's not in our English Bible. It's a word we use to describe and reference the coming of the Lord. But the word rapture is not in the Bible, but neither is the word dysfunction. But the Bible says a lot about dysfunction, doesn't it? The word psychology is not in the Bible. But the Bible has a lot to say about psychology. Do you know the word Genesis is not even found in the book of Genesis? So there can be a word that's not in the Bible. Does it mean that God doesn't teach it and God's word doesn't affirm it? While the word rapture is not found itself in the Bible, it references an experience. The Bible is absolutely clear will happen. What is the rapture? It is the catching away of the bride, the body of Christ. People that know Jesus, if you know the Lord is your Savior, there's going to come a day in which we will be raptured to be with the Lord. Where does it say that in Scripture? It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Let me just pause. If you have a family member that knows Jesus as their Savior and have preceded you in death and they are no longer alive, the Bible says when the rapture takes place, they're the first ones up. They will literally be resurrected from the grave. They will literally take bodily form and they will have the same bodily form that Jesus did his body when he came out of the grave on Easter Sunday. Literally physically will be resurrected. Verse number 17. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. Notice that word. That's, that's where we get the word rapture. The Greek word is harpazo. Rapture, harpazo. We will be caught up. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. What does it mean? That means that one of these days, there's going to come a trumpet call of God. G Jesus is going to tell the archangel Gabriel, it's time to bring my people home. Gabriel will blow a trumpet. In Scripture, Gabriel is always 
the archangel that announces something. Every time in Scripture something is announced, Gabriel is the one announcing it, and he will blow a trumpet, and the dead in Christ shall rise, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with the Lord in the air. That means that some of you will be at a workstation at work, and all of a sudden the trumpet call will go, and that keyboard will be empty. You'll be driving down the road. You may be in a plane. You may be at the dinner table. You may be in church. You may be in a, a place of business. You may be sleeping, and the Bible says, and when that happens, your spirit person will hear the call. And all of a sudden, you will be called up together with the Lord in the air. Will your body be here? No. You and your body will be in a glorified state just as Jesus' body was at the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And you will be caught up. You will be harpazoed. You will go to the presence of the Lord, caught up together with the Lord in the air. Now, just for a moment, I'm going to differentiate. Get, let, me, let me unpack this a little bit further. There are actually two comings mentioned in the Bible and I'm going to differentiate. There is the rapture of the church, and there is the coming of the Lord. And I'm going to separate them for you right now. The rapture of the church is when the harpazo moment happens, when we are caught up to be, to be with the Lord in the air. Go just a few verses further in 1 Thessalonians. Go into chapter 5, verse number 2. And it says the harpazo, the rapture of the church, will come like a thief in the night. A thief in the night does not announce it. A thief in the night comes by surprise. There is no warning. There's no message sent. A thief does not tell you. He doesn't send you a text message. He doesn't leave you a, a little sticky note on your front door. Three days from now at two o'clock in the morning, I'm going to rob your house. He doesn't do that. No. Amazon will tell you your package will arrive this afternoon. If you have a service person come to your house, they'll may tell you between 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock on this particular afternoon we're going to be there and we're going to service your air conditioning or your cable or whatever the case may be. There is a notice given. But the Bible says the harpazo moment, the catching away, the rapture of the church, there is no notice. It comes as a surprise. There is no warning ahead of time. Jesus will put it this way in Matthew chapter 24, verse 40 and 41. He said there will be two men one will be taken and another left. There will be two women grinding at the mill. One will be taken up and the other left. Notice that. The harpazo, the rapture of the church, they are caught up. They leave planet earth. They are taken away. Some will be left and some will go into the presence of the Lord. And this is a moment that will happen with the surprise. There will be no warning. They'll be working. They'll be going about their business. They'll be going about their commerce. They'll be going about their everyday lives. It will happen, and the trumpet call of God will call people home to be with the Lord. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. However, there is another coming mentioned in Bible. I will put it on the prophetic timeline in just a moment, but let me just reference it. It is after the great tribulation, and it is called the second coming. The rapture, Jesus, never comes to planet earth. We're called up to meet him in the clouds and the air. But the Bible says that there is another coming. Revelation chapter 1, verse number 7 says, when that coming takes place, every eye will see him. Now, wait a minute. You just talked about a thief in the night, and no one knows. And now you're saying every eye will see him. It's two different comings. The rapture is the thief in the night coming. But there is another coming where every eye will see him. It will be announced. 
everyone will know what's happening. In the book of Jude, there's only one chapter in the book of Jude. It's the book right before the book of Revelation. In verse number 14, it says that Jesus Christ is going to come back to earth with, with the 10,000 of his saints. There is a difference for Christ coming for his believers and coming back with the believers. Every parent in here, you know the difference of coming for and coming with. In the morning, the school bus comes for your children and takes them to school. After school is over, they come back with your kids and drop them off. You know the difference of the school bus coming for your kids and the school bus coming back with your kids. There are two comings. The rapture, the harpazel, the catching away. Jesus is coming for the redeemed, for Christ's followers. But the Bible tells us he's going to come back with his Christ followers, and we will be the army of heaven coming back to this earth with the Lord. There are two comings. I want to set this in place in our prophetic timeline. We, will, we, have, we have Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. We move into the present church age. The church age ends with the rapture of the church. The, the age of the church will end with the rapture. Why? Because the church, the body of Christ, believers in Jesus are caught up, are puzzled to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. What happens after the rapture of the church? Let's add that to our prophetic timeline. What happens after the church is what's referenced as the great tribulation. Some of you have heard it referenced the seven-year tribulation. They're one and the same. The Bible talks about a tribulation period such as not ever been on planet earth before when there will be the greatest, the greatest uh, sense of judgment, chaos, and destruction that has ever happened on planet earth. Now there are different theories about the rapture of the church. There is a pre-tribulation rapture. There is a mid-tribulation rapture. There is a post-tribulation rapture. The assemblies of God and this pastor unequivocally believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. That prior to the tribulation, Jesus is going to come. The trumpet will sound. And we as believers, Christ followers, will be caught up together with the Lord in the clouds and the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord, which will usher shortly thereafter the great tribulation, the seven-year tribulation. In the book of Daniel, chapter 9, it's called the 70th week of Daniel or the time of Jacob's trouble. Of great, of great distress upon planet earth. Now there are some that hold to the theory, and this again is another internet theory I'm going to push, at, push back against. There are some that hold to the view which is called the historical or the preternism theory. The preternism or historical theory says the great tribulation has already, take, has already taken place. And they cite two things in human history as either one of them being the fulfillment of the great tribulation. And I disagree with that, and I'll tell you why. The first is they believe that the destruction of the nation of Israel and the invasion of the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. by an emperor by the name of Titus was the fulfillment 
of the Great Tribulation. The invasion of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. is in your history books. Titus, a Roman emperor, attacked, invaded uh, the city of Jerusalem, and the nation of Israel disappeared for some 1,900 years after that. Some cite that as the fulfillment of the Great Tribulation. It cannot be because that happened in 70 A.D., The book of Revelation was written in 95 A.D., 25 years after that historical event. And the Bible says that the Great Tribulation at that particular time was still future. It was not in the past. So, 70 A.D. cannot be the fulfillment of the Great Tribulation. Others say the Great Tribulation was fulfilled in World War II and the Jewish Holocaust. Well, that was an unparalleled a moment of human and Jewish destruction, it does not fulfill the Great Tribulation because the Bible tells us at the conclusion of the Great Tribulation, Jesus comes to this earth, he puts his feet upon the Mount of Olives, and he establishes his kingdom. That did not happen post-World War II. So that cannot be the fulfillment of the Great Tribulation. I want to tell you the Great Tribulation, according to Scripture, is a future event that will take place prior to the Great Tribulation will be the harpazo, the rapture, the catching away, (coughs) excuse me, of the redeemed of God. The Great Tribulation is found in the Bible in the book of Revelation. It's chapter 6 through chapter 18. Those chapters catalog, describe, and give us an account of what the great tribulation will be like. We open up Revelation chapter 6, and we're introduced at the beginning of the great tribulation to four apocalyptic horse riders. The first one is the white horse rider. He speaks of deception. It's going to be a person that will arise on the scene And he's going to have an economic solution, and he's going to promise lower interest rates. He's going to promise a bulging economy. He's going to say we're going to move to full employment. If you will just align with me, governments will take care of you. You'll have health care. You'll have everything you want. The government is the solution to everything. But it is the deceptive horse rider following that. Shortly thereafter is the red horse rider, which speaks of war. What does that mean? All the promises the white horse rider offers will not work. It's going to throw the world into anarchy and chaos. There will be uprisings in the street. People will be marching. There will be coups. There will be, there will be turmoil and distress in the street. There will be an unleashing of war, which is followed by the black horse rider. The black horse rider speaks of economic collapse. The economic promises, the economic philosophies will absolutely tank and they will go into a recession and a depression. That all of a sudden people will be unemployed. People will not be able to have money to buy groceries. There will be an absolutely collapse of Wall Street, the NASDAQ, every Every stock market across the world will collapse, which is followed by the pale horse rider. 
the pale horse rider, when he comes upon the scene, one-fourth of the earth's population will be annihilated, will be destroyed. 1.5 billion people will be wiped off, will be destroyed by the pale horse rider, by famine and plague. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 6, there will be viruses that will be among the animal species that will mutate and move into the human population. There will be diseases and plagues and people will die in mass amounts and there will be no vaccination in order to save the people. Moreover, chapter 6 ends with a cataclysmic earthquake. The oil fields in the Middle East and across the world will be blazing torches destroyed in war. The belching black smoke of the black plume will be going up so much so the Bible tells us that the sun will be darkened in the sky. There will be a raining down of fiery missiles upon the earth, smiting the earth with nuclear warheads in it. For just a moment, think with me. John the Revelator wrote the book of Revelation in 95 AD. He wrote in language that he had. He did not have 21st century language, but he described 21st century warfare. He describes with accuracy a nuclear war. He did not have the, the language of warhead. He could not say a mushroom cloud. He had never seen it. That language had never been coined. But he saw by prophetic eye, he looked into the future, as it were, in a high-definition screen. He saw the events of, of the great tribulation laying out before him. He saw the scenes of 24th century warfare, and he describes it in the only language he has. And I want you to hear him as he describes nuclear warfare. Revelation 6, verse number 14, he says, and then... The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was shaken from its place. He describes nuclear war. He said that men's eyes will melt in their eye socket, and their flesh will fall from their skeleton and die and be annihilated instantly. He saw it and described it with such accuracy before there was even the invention of gunpowder. He was describing 21st century warfare. We go further in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 through 17. It says that the kings and the princes of the earth, the rich, the poor, the slave, the free, people among all nations, tribes, and tongues, are going to scream and cry out and say, save us. Let the rocks just come upon us and kill us and deliver us from the torment that we're going through. The water systems of the world will be poisoned by uh, radiation from the nuclear war and from chemical warfare. And the Bible says men will gnaw their tongue in their mouth. Their mouths will be parched because the water systems and the drinking water will be poisoned. Men who've had no thought of God will scrounge for a cave to hide in. 
people that have put God on the low priority of their life and have dismissed God are going to scream out crying for the reprieve of God to rescue them from the judgment that will come. Those who have spurned God for a lifetime will wallow in their misery as the holocaust of human slaughter fulminates and this world experiences that. That, lady and gentlemen, is chapter 6 of Revelation. And there are 12 more chapters describing things that will further happen during the Great Tribulation. I just shared with you one chapter. It will be unparalleled. When Jesus catches his church out, then all of a sudden, the Satan is going to have a heyday. And he's going to bring destruction upon planet earth that will absolutely be unparalleled. We will see the rise in, in the great tribulation of a character by the name of Antichrist. I'm sure you've heard that word. Let me describe it. There's going to be a man that will arise. And I don't believe it's a system. I believe it's actually a man that will arise. And the Bible says, count the number of a man. Count the number of a man, Revelation 13 and 18. And his number is 666. He will come upon the scene. And he's going to consolidate world economies. He's going to say, I have a solution to everything. Follow me. I will lay it out and I will solve all the world's problems. Can I just tell you today, right now, with all the computer hacks going on and data and identity theft going on, that somebody is stealing identity, people, it's wreaking havoc with businesses, corporations, and even your private information and data is threatened. Do you know society right now is saying, can't they create an Internet that is secure? Can't they create a software that you can't go into? Is there a way that people's personal data can be consolidated and it can only be in that person and no one can steal it? Can't there, isn't there an identity system? Isn't there a password, an identity system that we can create to keep people's data safe? Yes, and it's coming. And I want to suggest to you, we're writing the software for the Antichrist right now. Right now, the, the, the computer uh, engineers are writing software and trying to find the solutions the Antichrist is going to use when there will be a one-world money system. There will not be the U.S. dollar. There won't be the euro. There won't be the yen. There won't be the pound. There won't be a bitcoin. All of that will go by the side, and everything will be consolidated together in a one-world economy. The Antichrist will bring that. He'll make a pact with Israel in the middle of the great tribulation. He'll come on the scene. He said, I've got a solution. And to solve the world's problems, he said, I'll finally make peace in the Middle East. And for a period of three and a half years, it's going to calm everyone down. Where's the United States and all that? I'll share with you where the United States is found in the book of Revelation next weekend. But there's going to be a moment in which the Antichrist who makes the pact and the covenant with Israel is going to break it at the end of the seven-year period of time. And to my knowledge, the United States is no longer a player, and Israel stands alone. At the end of the Great Tribulation will come the Battle of Armageddon. 
Let me give it to you in language you'll understand. World War III is coming. World War III and the Battle of Armageddon will come upon planet Earth and all the nations of the world will come against Israel. And the Antichrist will say, he said, I will keep peace in the world and all the Arab nations and the anti-Semitism that has been prevalent throughout history is going to consolidate together. And the Antichrist says, I will deal with the Jewish nation to keep peace in the world. And in order to establish, in order to keep his reign and keep his dominance, he's going to deal with the nation of Israel. He said, we're going to wipe that little piece of land, that little nation off of planet earth. And they're going to come against the nation of Israel. And the Bible tells us that Israel will be encompassed by every side. They'll come by land, sea, and air. And that little nation will stand alone. A little nation that God says he put his name upon. A place of property that God says my name is upon that and my people will be there. By the way, can I just share with you parenthetically, I have in my office a satellite photo, a satellite photo of the nation of Israel. It was given to me by a gift in one of the tours that we went there. I can see the entire landscape from a satellite, the nation of Israel. And they only discovered this in a satellite photo. From a satellite looking down, they took a photograph of the nation of Israel and they discovered the mountain ranges of the nation of Israel the mountain peaks spell out the name of God in the Hebrew language. God has put his name upon that land, and the enemy hates it. Satan hates it, and he's going to try to steal the last evidence and the last fingerprint of God on planet earth. And they're going to surround the nation of Israel and come against them in the battle of Armageddon, World War III. And when Israel has no one standing with her, and she's encompassed by every side, the Bible says she's going to lift up her eyes and say, God save us. And then all of a sudden, he's going to come back with, with the 10,000 of his saints. And Jesus is going to put his feet upon the Mount of Olives. And he's going to destroy the nations that has stood against Israel, that has fought against God's people from the beginning. And he will establish his kingdom upon this earth and then we will go into the end of time. The second coming of the Lord will usher that, and God will bring forth his kingdom. What does that say to you and I? In the short time I have left, let me wrap this up, and I'll finish the message next weekend. The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 35, it's a message to every one of us. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Wait a minute. He comes with vengeance and divine re re retribution to, to bring destruction and to save us? What does that mean? Jesus gave us an explanation of that. He says, so it was in the days of Noah. So will it be in the days of the second coming of the Son of Man. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be. When the ark was built, Noah and his family went into the ark. And the ark for Noah, his family, and the animals was salvation. 
but for everybody else that was upon the earth, the ark was a, was a point of destruction. They were annihilated. They chose, they chose on which side of the ark to be on. And everyone that was in the ark was saved. And everyone outside the ark, they met destruction. I ask you rhetorically the question, the answer is found in Genesis chapter 7. How did the ark, the door of the ark, how was it closed? Have you ever thought about that? The animals go in, Noah goes in, he's the last one walking in the ark. And the Bible says this, and God shut the door. And when God shuts the door, the door is shut. When God shuts the door, ladies and gentlemen, the door is shut. The door can never be opened. You can pound on it afterward. After the rapture of the church, the door is shut. Right now, the door is open. Jesus said, whosoever will, let him come. I'll give them life. Whoever will, let them bow their knees and say, Jesus, you're my Lord. And salvation will come to them. But there's coming a day when the trumpet call of God comes like a thief in the night. No one will know it. The door will be shut. And you can't get into the ark after that. And I'm here to tell you, you can have peace with God today. You don't want to face the tribulation. You don't want to face a world without God because in the end, God's going to win. In the end, God is going to win. We have that confidence. And I say to the feeble hands and the knees that are about to give way, be strong. Be strong because the Lord will save you. But if you've never made a commitment to Jesus, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do so today, to make a commitment to him. And I'm going to ask you, no one leaving, please, let's respect the anointing and the time and the moment in the altar. No one leaving. No one leaving. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads all across the auditorium. Please, no one leaving. We're going to respect the altar moment. you've never made a commitment to Jesus you've never made a commitment to the Lord you can do so today but you see the door is open opportunity is still here you can call on the Lord and if you've never made a commitment to Jesus and you need to you say I believe in God I'm glad you believe but believing is not enough you need to believe and you need to repent and turn your life over to God it's called salvation. At Westover, we call it making new. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to know Christ as your Savior today. And if you've never made a commitment to Jesus, I'm going to invite you on the count of three to raise your hand. And we're going to give you a chance today. It's the most important decision you're going to make in your life. The question is put before you right now. Are you ready to receive the Lord? So here it is. One. Two, it's almost there. Three, I need Christ in my life. Yes. Yes. Somebody else, yes. God bless you. Yes. I don't know Christ. I don't know Christ. Yes. God sees your hand. I'm going to ask our prayer team to move forward and our deacon and deaconess right now. If you raise your hand, heads are bowed. If you raise your hand, you're on the main floor. 
I'm going to invite you to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior today. If you raise your hand, I'm going to ask you to get up right now. If you're sitting by yourself, just bring your purse and your belongings with you and step forward. Our prayer team person is going to meet you right here now. They're, they're standing in the altar. We're going to pray with you now. Yes, come. You want to receive Christ as your Savior? Come now. This is your moment to make a surrender to Jesus. Make a surrender. You believe, but you have never made a full heart commitment to Jesus. I'm going to invite you to do that today. I'm going to invite you to know the Lord now. Perhaps you didn't raise your hand, but you know you should have. You come now. Come now. Come now. Yes. Come now. I'm going to give another appeal. There's some of us that have drifted away from God. We call it being backslidden. What does that mean? If there's ever a time you were closer to God than you are right now, it's time to make a recommitment to Jesus. If there's ever a time you were closer to God than you are right now, it's a time to make a recommitment to Jesus. And if that's you and you want to recommit to the Lord, I'm going to invite you to stand up and come. In the balcony, there are people ready to pray with you in the aisles. If you want to come down from the stairs and come down here and pray, you join us, balcony, you're welcome to do that. But there's ever a time you were closer to God than you are right now, I'm going to invite you to come and make a full heart commitment to love the Lord with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. You come right now. Prayer team persons, I have some persons right over here if you'll come. You're on my right. I, I have some people right over here. Thank you. Thank you for coming this way. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to pray with you. If you're here, please don't leave. We're going to pray. You're the most important thing that's going to happen today. We're going to pray with you. Everyone else in this room, in the balcony, I'm going to invite you to stand together with me. And I'm going to, add, I'm going to invite you into a worship moment. We're going to declare God's going to win. I, don't, I want you to strengthen your, your feeble hand. Knees that are about to give way, strengthen that. Strengthen that. Let me talk to you for just a moment. Westover family, can I talk to you? This is your pastor talking. The first of the year, we're going to move into a presidential election. I expect the presidential election this coming year to be the most negative, mud-slinging, doomed, demagoguery, hateful, presidential election fear-mongering that we have ever gone through I'm going to invite you to not get caught up in that I'm going to invite you to not get worried and distressed over that I'm going to tell you today who's going to win the election God is God is going to win God's going to win this thing don't put your confidence and a Democratic donkey or a Republican elephant. Put your confidence in the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is going to win this thing. Keep your focus and your confidence in the Lord. God's going to win this thing. And I want you to declare your confidence right now in the Lord. Would you do that? Let's do that. Let's worship. We're going to declare it. We're going to go out with hope and, and assurance in our heart.